Migration Conversations is a podcast that invites persons to share their migration stories. Hosted by myself, Professor Jamie Liu, each episode is an in-depth conversation with people who have experienced the Canadian immigration system or other migration regimes up close. We talk to migrants, immigrants, lawyers, policymakers, advocates, and experts. We hope that these conversations shed light on the challenges migrants face through their own voices. Welcome to another episode of Migration Conversations. Today, we're going to be talking about the surveillance of migrants. With me today is Petra Molnar, a Mozilla Fellow, lawyer working for the European Digital Rights Group and Associate Director of the Refugee Law Lab at York University. Welcome, Petra. Thank you so so much for having me. You're welcome. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. Petra, your current research focuses on the use of technology to survey migrants and particularly in Europe. I wondered if you could first talk about how you became interested in the intersection of tech and migration. Sure, and I just want to say it's such a treat to be here. Uh, We are longtime colleagues and friends, and I was really looking forward to this conversation. Absolutely, I can tell you a bit about how I came to do this work, uh, which is, to be honest, quite by accident. Um, I am by training an immigration and refugee lawyer, but not at all a tech person. So I started looking into these issues Almost three years ago now, um, we at the legal clinic where I was working started, you know, to have some conversations around human rights and technology and and what's happening in the immigration space. And then a colleague of mine who ended up being a co-author on a report that we wrote on Canada, Lex Gill, who was a brilliant lawyer in Montreal, you should look her up. uh, She came across the fact that the Canadian government has been really wanting to push artificial intelligence and algorithmic decision-making into our um, immigration and refugee system, which was really worrying for us because when we started investigating this further, we realized that there really wasn't any kind of accountability or oversight mechanism in place, let alone a conversation around ethics and human rights. So when we're talking about algorithms and automated decision-making, we're essentially talking about a host of technologies that augment or replace humans in the kind of immigration and refugee application or a person's journey across borders, which I will get to. So from the Canadian perspective, we wrote this report called Bots at the Gate, which took a human rights analysis um, on these issues. And no one was more surprised than me when this little report kind of made the rounds internationally. And I think the reason why was because it was an innovative area. You know, there are not that many people working on this intersection between migration and technology. And that really opened up the door to looking at these issues from a more global perspective. So for the last, I would say almost two years, I've been trying to uh, look at migration, tech and surveillance from a global perspective. And I'm currently working on a project with a host of groups, essentially trying to understand the ecosystem in which migration management tech is being developed and deployed. And by that, I mean, you know, this is a host of technologies that can include all sorts of things. It can include drone surveillance. It can include algorithmic decision making at the border, AI powered lie detectors, which is actually a pilot project that was introduced in Europe. And uh, we are currently doing some on the ground research in Greece and in the Mediterranean corridor to see how this all plays out, uh, you know, kind of on people's lives. 
Wow, that is a humongous project to be working on, but very much needed. Um, it sounds super interesting. And like you said, you know, there isn't a lot of work at the intersection of tech and immigration refugee border law, I would say, but it, I think it is sorely needed. And um, as you said, you're currently working in Greece, conducting research on the European Union's migration pact and the tools states are using to basically criminalize and segregate migrants. Can you explain, first of all, to our listeners who might not have a background in this, what is the European Union's migration pact? Sure. So this is a brand new set of policies um, that were just released last week. And this is something that was kind of coming down the pipe for a while. But as you might know, of course, the European Union has been handling, you know, uh, an increased number of people crossing borders and claiming asylum uh, in the European Union since about 2015. And, you know, they've been handling it with varying levels of success, if I can be <laughs> diplomatic. Um, so this new pact was kind of announced and it was something that the European Union and the European Commission has been working on for a while. And then, and this is just my two cents on it, um, it might have been accelerated, the, this, the release of it rather, by the fire that burned down the Moria camp on Lesbos, which is an island really, really close to Turkey that has been one of the hotspots where um, people on the move and refugees are kind of warehoused, detained and essentially made to wait for processing before they get their refugee uh, status and then are allowed to move. So Moria was uh, one of the camps that had one of the worst reputations, I would say, uh, in terms of, you know, just uh, facilities, human rights abuses, and, and just was kind of, you know, one of the kind of worst places you could find yourself. And then when it burnt down, um, it perhaps might have accelerated why the pact was released. Now, for those of you who are interested, it's all publicly available. Um, there's all sorts of, you know, fancy documents that the commission released, but it's very much what you think think it would be. So just as an anecdote, a colleague of mine and I wrote an op-ed about the pact and we like, you know, we were very disciplined and we decided that we would pre-draft this op-ed and then watch the, um, you know, the press conference about it. And then of course we would have to edit our op-ed. In fact, we didn't have to make any changes to it because we basically foresaw what was going to be in the pact. Now that's not to make myself sound smart or anything, but it's just, it's very obvious the way that the commission is, is handling migration. So what's in the pact? Essentially, it really doubles down on border enforcement and on border externalization. So basically forcing people away, as far away from European Union borders as possible so that they don't even really have an opportunity to claim asylum. There's a lot of talk around solidarity. We kept counting the word solidarity in the press conference. It's like 200 times or something. It's crazy. What does that mean? Nobody really knows. But essentially, it's a doubling down of border enforcement. And interestingly, from the tech perspective, just to bring it back to that, um, there's really clear instances in the entirety packet of the documents where surveillance um, and border enforcement is really, really tied together with this new pact. So for example, Frontex, which is the entity that polices European borders, has been given an expanded mandate and funding. And they're really the one of the leading groups that's developing and deploying new technologies. And interestingly enough, you know, when like a set of documents like this comes out, I always do the control F thing, like, let's see if there's anything about artificial intelligence or drones or surveillance. And lo and behold, there is a section on facial recognition and basically going through pilot projects to see if facial recognition could be used at the border, including on minors. That is specifically written in there, which I think is really telling in terms of how the European Union is positioning itself when it comes to migration management policy. 
Wow, this is so alarming to to listen to and, and, and not an aspect of the migration pact that is covered very much. I would say, you know, there's a lot of talk about managing the border and, and a lot of attention of the influx of people, but not so much on the details of what exactly is being done to quote unquote manage this flow of the people on the move, as you say. Um, you mentioned uh, the island of Lesbos, and I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about that. You recently had a chance to visit a refugee camp there. Um, can you describe what you saw there? Sure. So we made the decision to go to Lesbos fairly last minute. Um, so the Moria camp burnt down, and then my colleague and I were in Greece already trying to do some on-the-ground research, essentially looking at surveillance and tech. And then when this tragedy occurred, you know, we were really conscious of also the power dynamic of, you know, two outside researchers going into a humanitarian crisis like that. You know, you always have to ask yourself, what are you adding to the conversation? But I think there's something to be said too about two Canadians going in and, and kind of being able to witness and, and hold space for different types of conversations that are maybe not talked about. So we went to see, you know, we went there for two reasons, both to kind of witness and, and observe what is happening and also to kind of start laying the groundwork for this project that we're doing, because essentially we were witnessing the rise of a new camp, literally from the ground up. So when we first got there, so essentially Moria, which was a huge camp, burnt down completely. When you're in there, it's, it's charred, like there is no tents, there is, you know, food boxes lying around, there's diapers, there's pens, there's burnt out schools, like it's unlivable. And then all the people that were in Moria were basically forced into this stretch of road um, and then cordoned off or blocked off. And they were not allowed to leave for almost a week. They had no water. They had no food. NGOs were being targeted for um, distributing food. There was even tear gas at one point. And then people were basically forced, um, starved, you could say, uh, forced to go into this new camp, which has kind of different names. Some people call it Karatepe, which is Kind of the area where it is some people are calling it moria too because essentially that's kind of what it is it's on this like peninsula that juts out into the sea and it's really quite horrific i mean the wind howls so loudly that you can't even really hear yourself um it's the tents are so flimsy that i, I just don't understand the reasoning behind putting people on this kind of peninsula and well, actually, no, I can. I mean, it's, it's bordered by water on three ends. So that in and of itself acts as a border. And it's also on an old shooting range, um, which is kind of evocative as well. You know, it's like this space that's been repurposed to warehouse and detain, essentially, um, the people. Even though, you know, they, they are allowed to leave, you just have to sign in and out. There's a curfew. Um, and we were able to gain entry into the camp um, through various means. Uh, but we went in and uh, witnessed kind of, we were on a press tour, right? So it, we only really saw what the, the camp administration wanted us to see. But even that was quite horrific. There was a COVID area also, you know, where people were essentially behind barbed wire as like the quote unquote positive cases. But one of the most, for me, um, kind of telling things that I took away from it was that COVID really was an afterthought. Yes, we're in the middle of a global pandemic, and yet it is not something that people really, I think, had even the mental ability to deal with, because if you can't feed your child or you can't wash your hands, COVID becomes a theoretical threat. And just like surveillance as well, you know, I mean, it's kind of this lurking presence that's there. But when you're dealing with kind of the humanitarian needs of a population, it is a little bit of an afterthought. But for us, it was interesting to engage with the police, with the border guards, and just to see, you know, some of the conversations around how securitized this new camp would be. 
And it was a really, really useful place to be, particularly in the aftermath of the fire. And I'm planning to go back again, um, perhaps in a few weeks, just to see how it's been developing and, and what some of the messaging from the policy level is um, in terms of what's going to happen in the next few months. Wow, that's fascinating, Petra. Uh, I, I think it's you know very apt that you talk about the hierarchy of needs and how many of us are you know engulfed or obsessed with uh, surviving uh, the conditions we're put under due to the pandemic. And yet um, it seems luxurious to think about that considering the daily struggles and uh, challenges that people have in this particular camp that you speak of and how COVID really is, like you said, an afterthought or a lurking presence, as you said. You know, it's interesting to think about how dire and how um, difficult life could be to get to the point where you know, a pandemic can be a secondary thought or a secondary consideration that's alarming to say the least. I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit about who are the people at the camp, maybe where they come from, how they got there. Uh, just so listeners who might not have any um, idea about where, why this camp exists. Sure. So, so, more, so the Moria camp, or just the camps on Lesbos, if we want to speak generally, um, are one of the hot spots. So essentially that means um, when large numbers of people were coming to the European Union in 2015, 2016 to claim asylum, the EU was really scrambling. And, and countries like Italy and Greece are sometimes conceptualized as Europe's shield. So they're essentially there to act as like the policing force um, of the European Union in the sense that they have had to figure out how to keep large numbers of people um, contained in ways that would please the rest of the European Union and some of the stronger states as well until people were assessed um, for their refugee protection and potentially then sent um, somewhere else like Germany or the Netherlands or France. And so Moria became one of the spots where people were essentially warehoused. Um, they had nowhere else to go. Um, and the, I mean, there's a split on Lesbos. I mean, I'm, I'm generalizing a little bit, but essentially, you know, we're talking about um, residual populations of Syrians that came from the kind of early uh, point of the refugee crisis. And then also a lot of Afghanis, um, Hazara and, and other groups. Some unaccompanied minors for sure, um, but there seems to be a split. There's a, there's a few other camps there that are also actually now facing the threat of closure. Um, the Pikpak camp um, on Lesbos might be closed mid-October, so essentially next week, which is one of the camps that has um, received a lot of praise for being run well, and it's for more vulnerable cases like single women and children. But now, you know, they're facing the threat of closure and no one really knows what's going to happen. Um, so the population is varied. Uh, in the new camp, there was talk of kind of creating specific areas for different groups, but, you know, it, it all kind of remains to be seen. But I will also say this. For me, one of the most kind of, I don't know, uh, I guess, points that stays with me during the last few months that I've been here is, you know, when you see a place like Moria or when you go to these camps, I mean, it is, it is quite horrific in many ways. And, and you are just shocked that this could be happening in Europe. But then you talk to people in Athens, for example, who have come, who have received housing for a year and then find themselves, for example, evicted because they can't find affordable housing or a job or language skills. And there have been numerous cases of people who will willingly leave the mainland to go back to Lesbos because it's easier there than it is here, which is also really telling about how broken the system is. 
That's um, shocking to hear actually that people would leave an urban center that perhaps has services, amenities to go back to a refugee camp because they feel personally they can get more support there. Um, that's, yeah, very telling. Um, Petra, as part of your work with the European Digital Rights, with the Refugee Law Lab, you've been documenting the rise of migration management technologies. Can you describe what those technologies are? I know you've talked a little bit about drones, um, different uh, facial recognition, for example, but I wondered if you could elaborate more exactly what technologies states are using to manage the movement of people at borders, what they're using them for, and what you can glean what the purposes are for this, and what are, what are the consequences potentially of using these technologies? Sure, Jamie, yeah, that's a great question. Um, the way I like to talk about it is, you know, kind of from a systemic perspective. So if you look at look at the migration management ecosystem as a whole, there's things that happen before you even cross a border. So let's start there. So, for example, states are increasingly using, you know, things like data mining and looking at people's social media uh, to try and make predictions about whether or not they're likely to be a terrorist or whether they should be put on a no fly list or things like that. So that all happens before you even cross the border. When you get closer to the border space, and of course borders are changing and becoming more fluid and shifting and being externalized or pushed further and further away from their physical location. And in a way, maybe even our iPhones are becoming borders or even our bodies these days. So the border as a concept, we have to broaden our understanding of as well. But when we're talking about the border space and technologies, you know, that's where things like autonomous drones come in. So instead of, you know, patrol boats in the Aegean or Mediterranean Sea, you now have increasing uses of drones uh, or automated, um, you know, all sorts of technologies to try and interdict or prevent people from even coming in the first place. Um, we are also seeing the rise of really, really problematic other type of technology. So, for example, things like AI lie detectors. When I first found out about this, I mean, that was incredibly dystopic to me. It was this project called iBorder Control, which is funded by the Horizon 2020 funding scheme in the European Union. And it was this pilot project that basically said, hey, we've developed this AI lie detector that will use facial recognition to determine whether or not you're telling the truth at a border point. And if you're determined to be lying, then you're going to be screened for secondary processing. Now, as a refugee lawyer, to me, that's hugely disturbing because, you know, how can a system like this deal with differences in cross-cultural communication, for example? or the fact that you might not be making eye contact with the avatar that you're supposedly interacting with? Or what about the impact of trauma on memory and the fact that you might not remember all the details that you need to remember to not be labeled a liar by the system? And perhaps most tellingly, this eye border control project was rolled out in Greece, in Hungary, and in Latvia. Greece and Hungary are two major interdiction points for people entering Europe. So it's not, not at all an accident um, that this iBorder control project was, was, you know, rolled out there. Now, then it was like widely discredited for not working because a lot of facial recognition technology just doesn't work. But the fact that this was even developed in the first place is really, really disturbing. And the third category of technologies is kind of the stuff that happens after you cross the border already. So that's the things I was talking about when, you know, I first entered into the space looking at, you know, automated decision making and algorithms and how they're making their way into immigration uh, decision making. So that can mean all sorts of different ways that visa applications are triaged, 
but also the ways that, you know, biometrics are making their way into our understanding of how to, you know, manage data and all sorts of ways like that. So really what I'm trying to do in, in this work is to create a map of how this all fits together because, you know, there's really, it, it's an emerging area, but I think it will be really helpful to, to talk about it from this kind of more systemic way because they also all inform one another and it really plays up these kind of discourses of controlling migration, criminalizing people on the move, and using these increasingly kind of draconian, almost dystopic technologies to, to control people's movements. And not to always bring it back to COVID, but that the COVID element is also important because it accelerates a lot of this kind of biosurveillance because we all want to stop the pandemic, don't get me wrong. But now there's this linkage between, you know, using kind of biotech and COVID tech and the concerns that it might, you know, then be used to over-police and surveil people of color, people on the move, and all sorts of other marginalized groups that are already kind of at the forefront of state surveillance. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because um, a lot of people assume that this is happening to people in other places, to migrants, to indigent persons. But what I think many people don't realize is that if it's being used there, at what point will it start to seep or trickle into our society, into our community where people around us, um, and especially racialized persons may be subject to this kind of surveillance in our day-to-day -day lives outside of the border. Or as you said, maybe the border is being felt within our community in different ways. And, and it should be alarming to us that this is happening. Um, but which feeds into my next question. Um, you know, this, you're talking about this in Europe, but this is happening all over the world to some extent, right? Um, and can you speak about basically the urgent need to pay attention to this right now um, and how to different degrees this, this kind of approach to border management, to surveying, to evaluating people um, at different border sites, um, different technologies are being used to help make those decisions or to manage, as you say, the data or movement of people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, having a global understanding of this phenomenon is key because, like you said, it crosses jurisdictions and it, it's happening the world over. And really, it's this normalization of making certain communities the guinea pigs for technological experiments whether it's in migration or criminal justice or welfare, we're seeing the rise of algorithmic decision-making and automated decision-making the world over. And really, I mean, it also, not to make it too philosophical, but let's just for a second. Um, I mean, it's also about questions around like who counts as a reasonable decision-maker and what kind of world are we building and what, what do we owe to each other when we interact with different state processes? because all these technologies really change the ways that we relate to one another and the kind of assumptions we make about human behavior and what kind of tools we use to help us because technology is not neutral. It, you know, it highlights the way power operates in society and who gets to benefit from these sexy new tools that we're developing. It's not the unrepresented refugee litigant or someone you know, facing another sentence in the criminal justice system or you know, a mother who needs welfare it's, it's always the state, it's the powerful actors and the private companies as well that monetarily benefit from the development of this technology. That's a whole other piece to this conversation that we can't discount. It's big money and big tech. Um, so I think we need to have these broader conversations around who gets to participate in the conversations around what are we comfortable with when it comes to new technology making its way into sometimes life or death decisions. 
that do impact people. I mean, I think this is the, the weirdest thing for me about entering this tech space as a non-tech person. Like years ago, I didn't even know what an algorithm was. Like we're talking like basic Luddite level. <laughs> you know, for me, what I find particularly disturbing is this division between people who are developing and thinking about the technology and then those of us who are critiquing it or working with communities or are part of communities that are affected by this. And I mean, I think it's easy to say, oh, it's just like evil Google or evil Amazon out to get us. Like, yeah, sure, of course. But it's also more complicated. I think it's just, it's differences in lived experience, right? And when you have an engineer in Silicon Valley or in Toronto or wherever, developing something for the sake of innovation, they might not be thinking about how this plays out in a courtroom or a refugee camp or you know, whether it's a matter of, is this boat going to be rescued in the Aegean or not? And sometimes when I have conversations with the private sector, you know, I try and go around the room and I ask like, you know, who's an engineer? A couple hands go up. Who's into policy? A couple more hands go up. Who's ever been to a refugee camp? Usually just my hand goes up, right? And it's not to make anyone feel bad about their particular lived experience, but it's just to highlight that oftentimes the way that tech is developed is so far away and so removed from how it's actually deployed and experienced because it does hurt people in real ways. And we need to have a conversation around if we are using this technology in the first place and that maybe there needs to be an even more foundational conversation around abolitionism. Like maybe we just don't use facial recognition or automated decision-making at all. If we are going to use it, what kind of oversight exists? Are we thinking about the human rights and civil liberties impacts of it? And most importantly, who has to participate in those conversations? Why is it always lawyers talking about this? Why are we not talking with the actual affected communities? And that's what we're trying to do with our project. Yeah, I think that's an important piece that is missing here. Overridingly, it seems to me that there is, seems to be very little oversight, accountability over even just the primary decision of what to use, how to use it, and whether there is mechanisms for redress for people who are subject to the consequences of the use of the technology um, or even just the sharing of the data, the recording, is there consent even happening at these junctures? I think there's so many ethical questions, professional responsibility questions that arise even for you and I as lawyers about the interactions, the so-called, you know, uh, engagements that we're having at these um, different sites. And, as you said, I think it's all the more important to think about that when the people that are subject to it are being done so in, as you say, in a kind of experimental fashion, um, in ways that could lead to long-standing, life-changing decisions. And so I wondered if you could talk about that. Um, is there at all, am I painting a very, very bleak picture where there's no oversight or accountability? Is there any whatsoever, what can be done or how, are people pushing back on this um, that you've seen, if at all? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, there's definitely, I've noticed a difference in the last year where we've moved a little bit away from, let's say, like ethics of technology to the human rights impact. And not just talking about privacy, but also talking about discrimination and all these other human rights that are impacted by migration management tech, for example. But I think, you know, those conversations don't go far enough. There's very little regulation when it comes to tech development. And oftentimes, again, you, you create this kind of responsibility gap where, for example, the public sector requires the private sector to be intimately involved in the development of this technology. But then when something goes wrong, the public sector can say, oh, well, you know what, not our problem because we didn't develop it. 
private sector will say, well, not really our problem either because that, you know, the public sector was the client or recovered by all sorts of corporate shields or IP law or whatever. And there's this kind of responsibility laundering that happens between the, these two kind of sectors, right? Which are actually not really that separate anyways. I think we have this like false dichotomy, but it doesn't really work that way. But there is very little regulation when it comes to, you know, the use of technology in, in these types of decisions, administrative decision-making, immigration, whatever you want to call it. I mean, I think it is changing slowly, but I think the problem is that because it's a inherently a multi-jurisdictional global phenomenon and technology travels across borders very easily, it might be developed in Israel and sold to Europe and then copied over at the U.S.-Mexico border. I mean, it's very difficult to pin it down to any particular, you know, legal instrument or anything like that. And I don't, you know, I don't, this is probably not a satisfying answer, but I don't really know what the best way forward would be, whether regional mechanisms make more sense, whether some red lines around, let's say, facial recognition being used in immigration, just completely a no-go, whether, you know, there needs to be a UN convention on this. I mean, who knows? Um, but I think the problem too, it's, it's, it's a geopolitical problem because states are increasingly engaged in what some scholars have called the AI arms race. Not only is it sexy and innovative, but there's also a lot of money in the development of this. And Canada is like right up there. Seems like we are obsessed with AI. I mean, there's all sorts of AI consortia, this, 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 you know, and that plays into it too. Like why would states want to regulate this if there is geopolitical clout to be won and also if there's money in it? So I think we're facing a really uphill battle. Um, but one thing that we're finding really successful in, in the work that we're trying to do is again, to bring in the lived experiences of people, to humanize the issue for people in Brussels or in Ottawa or you know these centers where decisions get made about people's lives. Because sometimes it just is like, well, what are you complaining about? It's an algorithm, like it doesn't really matter. But you need to bring in the perspectives of the communities that are affected. And I do think that is a really useful way to get policymakers to start thinking about what this looks like. But I think you basically you need a top-down approach, you know, where policymakers are thinking about what this is going to look like from a regulatory perspective. But we also need a bottom-up approach, and that has a lot to do with education, both for lawyers who need to be trained in how tech um, is going to be impacting all of our practice, but also from, you know, engineers and data scientists and people who are actually going to be developing this technology. How does this play out in people's lives? What are the human rights impacts? What are your ethical obligations? It needs to be there from the get-go. And, and I think that is a tangible kind of goal that we can work towards. Yeah, I think that's a very useful way to talk about it because for many of us working in the field, sometimes we are encountered with really strange situations just by virtue of responding to something or being working on a case. And I, I clearly remember someone emailing me and saying, <laughs> I just got this disclosure um, it appears that this client's DNA was used to identify their country of origin as a, a way to identify a place for them to be deported to. So I think it's very interesting that we're, we're already seeing the uses and the consequences, um, and we haven't caught up with that, especially those of us as lawyers working in the field. And I think you're right that we need to start um, approaching it head on and recognizing that tech is here, tech is informing decision makers, and tech is changing the lives of people literally. And um, you're right in that we should be viewing it with a human rights lens and with the, um, with in mind how it's impacting communities and what they're experiencing as a result to it. I wondered if you could maybe 
you know, as a final question, talk about how do you keep up? How do you find out about what's being used on the ground? You know, what are the challenges you have in your research in this rapidly moving and changing um, environment and ecosystem, as you've called it? Yeah, Jamie, that's the hardest part, I think. Um, and again, as someone who is not trained in tech, uh, for me, it was an uphill battle to, you know, really get up to speed in terms of how this all worked. But also getting comfortable with being one of the few people who works on this, because sometimes you just think, oh, my God, I must be missing something huge and major. And then you realize, well, you know, that's just it. That's the analysis that you're going to get because there's nothing else on it. I mean, for me, I, I work from a very collaborative perspective and, and that's been really fruitful, particularly in this incredibly fast developing area. So, you know, for example, here in Athens, I've gotten the chance of working with a group of, you know, social hackers, I guess I could call them, people who are really well informed in terms of how these technologies are being developed and deployed before it even hits the media. Um, I mean, I like to think as someone who's like quite plugged in, but like compared to these guys, I got nothing like it's like this is like next level you can text them and within 10 minutes you have an answer about like this drone that you maybe saw on Lesbos like it's incredible. Um, so it's people like that that really help. Um, but you're right. I mean, it is quite overwhelming because it does develop um, at such a rapid speed. And also, I think it's deliberate that it's obfuscatory and that it's done in this kind of way that's not really intelligible to those of us who are even working on this. That's why this coalition building and working with people who are, you know, for example, studying Frontex or studying CBSA is really helpful because then we can come together and learn from each other because otherwise it can get totally overwhelming. Um, and I mean, now I think more and more people are becoming aware that this is an issue. And so hopefully we can find ways to all work together because it's not like this is going to go away anytime soon. And in fact, I think this is kind of the new frontier of, of human rights that we need to think about. Yeah, that's fantastic. Petra, I want to say that I'm really looking forward to seeing what you discover and to see the research flowing from this project. I think it will have an important contribution and impact on the lives of people on the move, migrants, refugees. Um, and I want to thank you for your time um, taking away um, from your research there in Greece to share your insights and um, your illuminating um, observations so far. So um, I'm along with, I'm sure many listeners will be following you as you continue to survey the state and the activities they uh, will undertake to um, manage people on the move. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It was really my pleasure to be here and I hope I get to be back soon. Migration Conversations is created and hosted by me, Professor Jamie Liu, and produced by University of Ottawa Tech Law Fellow June Gleed. This podcast was made possible with the guidance and assistance of University of Ottawa Tech Law Fellow Ritesh Kotak, Carleton University graduate student Rachel McNally, as well as the generous support of Carleton University and the University of Ottawa shared online projects and initiatives. You can find more Migration Conversations episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and YouTube with closed captions. Thank you for listening, and a special thank you for all the guests who have shared their experiences publicly.